0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to a 2021 edition of the Great War Channel podcast. Um, Today, finally, we're going to talk about the Ottoman Empire.
0: And man, I can tell you, I've been looking forward to this interview. Well, let's just say as much, perhaps more than most, because when I got my hands on this advanced copy of uh, Dr. Uyar's book about the Ottoman army in the great war really it's just a reminder that I need to read a lot more about the topic because there's so many interesting aspects and there's so many useful reminders about different perspectives on how to assess the performance the structure the organization the intentions of the Ottoman military that it was really like a I have to say, it was a really stimulating experience to read it and also to talk to him today. And we had a lot of interest from the, from the community out there as well. So it was double the fun.
1: Yeah. Uh, you had you out there in internet land um, and you, our Patreons really looked forward to this episode. We get so many questions, which were all very good questions. And I think we answered most of them or not we Our guest answered most of them. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you want to ask the historians that we regularly regularly interview on this podcast any more questions, then you can do so on our Patreon page. I usually put up a post a few weeks in advance. And yeah, then have world-class historians answer your questions that we couldn't maybe answer in the same amount of depth. So without further ado, here is our interview about the Ottoman Empire in World War One.
0: So today I am, as usual, very happy to welcome our guest. We have with us today Dr. Mesut Uyar, who is a professor of international relations at Antalya Bilim University. And he's written numerous books on Ottoman and Turkish military history, including a book that is coming out in early 2021, called The Ottoman Army and the First World War. So, Dr. Uyar, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Uh, Thank you for the invitation. It's delicious.
0: All right. Now, we have quite a few questions because this is a very popular topic for the viewers and listeners of The Great War and the podcast. But let's ease into it a little bit. Can you tell us why you decided to write this book on the ottoman army and the great war and what do you think that what do you think was needed new research of yours that's going to contribute to this body of literature that exists on the ottoman army and the war
2: well uh, first of all uh, there is no modern up to date single volume book about the ottoman army and the first world war right now in english but also also in turkish additionally uh, we have the main issue of an army without a face everybody knows about the ottoman participation to the first world war but even very basic information chronology individuals some battles very difficult Find about so initial uh, reason why I have started this project has something to do prepare a kind of an handbook user friendly to give basic information without jargon without lots of details. Uh, I'm an operational military historian, so I deal with the bloody mission of the war, uh, but I try to limit myself, not get into too much details, uh, but at the same time satisfy uh, the readers, military historians, to give them uh, a picture of the Ottoman army who fought the First World War. Uh, we have some issues. Uh, as you know, uh, in Turkey, in former Ottoman provinces, uh, the Arab countries, uh, After the end of the First World War, that was a kind of a nationalistic uh, interpretation of the history, because after the collapse of the Ottoman uh, Empire, new nations born out of the Ottoman Empire, and they focused upon writing their own national histories. And the Ottoman Empire, all of a sudden, transformed into an ideal scapegoat you can accuse for everything. For Arab nations, the Ottoman period was a dark age, and the First World War ended this dark age with a very bloody uh, way. For the Turkish Republic, uh, because they founded a new nationalist republic, they would like to keep a distance with the First World War and the Ottoman Empire. Because during the foundation period of the republic, there was a three-year-long uh, Turkish uh, uh, Turkish war of independence against the Greeks, the Armenians, the French, and some others. So they put more emphasis about that war. So even in Turkey and most of the Arab uh, countries, the first war was seen as a kind of a dark spot with uh, limited information about it, painted with very nationalistic uh, understanding of the war. From the Western uh, Western perspective, uh, this uh, is sideshows, Oriental sideshows, except which the populist Napoli campaign, and to a certain extent, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, people pay no attention about what had happened at Mesopotamia, Kafkas' front Palestine. Uh, Although the Australians put uh, much emphasis about uh, light wars, their adventures, etc. But th- these are all very romantic uh, and to a certain extent orientalistic uh, story type uh, understanding. Plus, uh Western historiography uh, at the same time used different standards for the Ottoman army. So they did not treat the Ottoman army as a European army, but something others. So these uh, all were the reasons why I initiated this project. And hopefully, uh, readers will judge the merits of the book after getting their copy and reading it. I hope.
0: Now, in terms of uh, using different standards to judge the Ottoman army and the, the particular approach of... Western historiography, I suppose mostly uh, mostly Anglophone world historiography in this case. you talk at the beginning of the book, you write a bit about some of the use of sources in, in many of the English language books that have appeared about the Ottoman Empire during the war and how They haven't always had access, if we want to be, let's say, charitable, haven't always had access to some Turkish language sources, and in other cases have predispositions. Um, What do you think that people who are interested in history, who don't read Turkish, need to know about the Ottoman army in the war that doesn't really get mentioned in the existing typical English language literature. What is What are kind of some of the gaps that are there?
2: First of all, if you are interested in First World War, well, that means you already read uh, lots of books. So use the same standards that you are applying to German army, the British army, French army, or the Russians, even the Russians. Use the same standards to the Ottomans. So the Ottoman army was not a kind of an uh, very extraordinary, unusual Oriental military. It might be that during the 13, 14, 15 centuries, but that was not the case during the First World War. The Ottomans were uh, following the German model closely, using uh, the German manuals, but with their understanding of it. So the Ottoman army was a European army using the European tactics and techniques using the, uh, similar weapons, equipment, vehicles. Of course, the Ottoman uh, Empire was a, a medieval type uh, in terms of economy, depending upon agriculture, very backwards in terms of industry sources. But the Ottoman soldiers' officers trained to fight a European war. So uh, if you try to understand the Ottoman army, first of all, you need to understand the First World War. What were the general problems, general issues affected all the armies? You can find the same problems with the Ottoman army. So uh, in some sources, uh, in English, uh, in some English books, you come across... Uh, accusing Ottomans for various shortcomings or various things, or trying to paint the Ottomans in a very uh, black and white uh, pictures. But if you pay notice, the same issues that you are accusing the Ottomans also affected all the other armies. I mean, first of all, we need to understand the general problems affecting everyone, and then we may able to understand the peculiar of the Ottoman military. So the main issue for the common readers and military historians, they are using different standards for the Ottomans uh, and uh, different standards for the British, French, or the Germans. If you try to see the Ottomans as a regular European army, you will uh, have better uh, chances to understand uh, the Ottoman, army, and it is peculiarities; it is uh, special. identity is keeping it different from the other uh, militaries of the period.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the sort of details of investigating the Ottoman army in a more thorough way was, I thought anyway, were some of the sources, and you mentioned, for example, that. Some officers were encouraged to keep notes and keep diaries and so on, which wasn't the case in Western armies. And that's a source that hasn't seen as much use as it perhaps could. So that's, I think, I thought that was one of the most interesting angles. But uh, plowing ahead, we have had several listeners of ours who were interested in the influence of the Germans. So, I think most most people who have an interest in history, they know that the Germans were sending the Ottoman supplies, equipment, weapons, but also officers to quote-unquote advise uh, the Ottoman army. But can you kind of summarize for us, what was the extent of the influence of Germany in the Ottoman conduct of the war? Well,
2: the uh, ottoman german military relations, uh uh, historically, it it had a long history, it started in the 1830s, but the real start of the German influence is started uh, after the Ottoman-Russian War of 1877-1878. Uh, the Ottomans suffered uh, defeats against the Russians, so they invited a sh- small German military advisory mission including the larger-than-life Kolmar von der Goltz in 1883. So real German influence started in the 1880s. Uh, not only the Ottomans uh, invited to purchase uh, thousands of German weapons, equipment, ammunition, uh, even uh, warships, and also the Ottomans started sending hundreds of officers and uh, non-commissioned officers, even foremen, to learn uh, the military uh, knowledge from Germany uh, by uh, graduating from German military schools or on-the-job trainings with the German military. So in 1914, I was a German military mission, uh, von Sander's uh, military advisory mission. I was at around 100 uh, German advisors, uh, and shortly after the war, we were assigned to different units as unit commanders or chief of staff. And during the war, more German officers and units arrived the Ottoman Empire. But the most important thing, in 1914, the Ottoman army was already Design it is organizational table doctrine training manuals according to the German model. So the German military advisor mission simply reinforced the German model, uh, encourage German trained officers to make use of the German way of war more. And in a certain extent, respect the Ottoman was more. German than the German army because uh, before the war uh, there was a, a big discussion change square unit structure into a triangular structure. I mean uh, at that time a division consists of two brigades, each brigade uh, consists of two regiments. This is called square system. But the Germans uh, at the beginning of the 20th century started discussing that triangular system would be better. So a division with three regiments, a regiment with three battalions and trying to get rid of uh, excessive headquarters and trying to embed the uh, uh, fire squad into the infantry units. So the Germans, because of conservatism, were not able to apply it in 1914, but they applied during the war. Ottomans already started applying this German uh, triangular system in 1911, before the Balkan Wars, well before the uh, First World War. So the Ottomans think and act more like uh, the German doctrine. Of course, the Ottoman army had uh, differences from the Germans because German army an industrialized nation with abundance of uh, weapons, ammunition, lots of industrial support. So the Ottomans Try to accommodate the German model according to the Turkish system. You can easily see German effect on most of the uh, combat operations, uh, containing conventional units, of course, because the Ottomans also some uh, irregulars, so they operated differently. But the Ottoman thinking, way how the Ottoman fights, clearly resembles the Germans.
0: That's fascinating. I have to say, I didn't realize the extent of uh, some of that, and that's, uh, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed working my way through the book. Now, our most popular question, I have to say, and one that I was also looking forward to. I'm not sure what the, why this is so fascinating, but I think it's part of the reason why these uh, multinational empires are of interest, including Austria-Hungary, to so many people. And the question is, uh, or the questions are generally, they're about the situation of non Turkish minority groups in the army. So, can you characterize for us the situation of these non Turkish groups in the army? Were they integrated normally? Were they separated in some way? Were they used in combat roles, non combat? Did they make it to the officer level, et cetera, et cetera? And we had one particular question, which I'll throw out as, a, as, a, as an extra addition. Were there Ottoman Greeks in the Navy? Since, of course, Greeks lived mostly on the coastal areas and are known for their skill in seafaring. Voila, that's a scattershot approach for you. Go for it.
2: Uh, okay, uh, let me answer your last question first. Uh, the answer is no. No. Uh, because of the 1823-1828 uh, 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 Greek independence uh, war. Uh, previously, before the Greek independence, there were lots of Greeks as sailors and officers within the Ottoman Navy. Navy. But after uh, this Greek in the, uh, betrayals and uh, question of loyalty, uh, all the Greeks perched out of the Ottoman Navy. So uh, there may be some uh, sailors. I don't think a lot, but there may be some. But certainly there were no officers or uh, NCOs from uh, Greek background within the Ottoman Navy. But there were some uh, medical doctors Uh, within the Ottoman Navy, uh, which are Greeks. But within the uh, combat formation of the Navy, uh, the answer is no. Related with the main question, uh, we have to uh, divide the non-Turks into two groups. Muslim, but non-Turks like Arabs, the Kurds, Circassians and all the rest of the uh, Muslim nations of the Empire, uh, they were treated equally uh, with the uh, Turkish uh, ethnic group. So, uh, as you said, Ottoman Empire was a multinational uh, empire. Of course, started with 1909. That was the rise of Turkish nationalism in the empire, and certain Turkish leaders can be leaders as uh, Turkish nationalists, but. As a system, Ottoman Empire remained multinational national until the end. So, if you are coming from a Muslim family, uh, if you get into the army as an officer or as a soldier, you will be treated equally. And initially, most of the Ottoman units were territorial. That means a unit raised in Syria consists mostly of Syrian recruits. Unit raised in uh, western part of Anatolia consists of mostly Turkish peasants, and a unit raised in, for example, at the Iranian borders, uh, mostly consists of Kurdish conscripts. Uh, there was uh, lots of Circassians separate throughout the empire, and the percentage of Circassian officers within the Ottoman officer corps was, uh, was high. There were also Albanians and others uh, Muslims from the Balkan regions, because as you know, uh, thousands of the uh, Muslims had to immigrate to Anatolia after the uh, Balkan Wars. There was a sizable amount of uh, not only Circassian but also other Caucasian nations within the Ottoman Empire, and they were treated equally. So. Of course, uh, because of the nationalistic understanding of the world after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, you may come across uh, lots of uh, accusations about the Ottomans that they didn't treat uh, the non-Turks equally. But when you pay attention to the uh, war period, we are not coming this nationality issue within the Muslims much. Of course, Uh, for example, uh, if uh, the unit is fighting on the Caucasus front, because they are getting the conscripts from the regions, that that means most of the units consist of ethnic Turks. Uh, Same unit, when transported to Palestine, because it started to get Arab recruits instead of Turks, in a very short time, transformed into an Arab unit. One very good example is the famous 19th division that Mustafa Kemal Atatürk commanded during the Gallipoli campaign. 19th division was an ethnic Turkish unit, consisted of conscripts from the Eastern Trust. And it was an ethnic, ethnic Turkish unit during the Gallipoli campaign. After the Gallipoli campaign, it was sent to Galicia, Eastern Europe work under the Austria-Hungarian army against the Russians. And after suffering uh, hundreds of casualties, unable to get recruits from the Ottoman Empire, 19th Division received recruits from uh, Bulgaria, from the occupied Serbia, the Muslim uh, citizens of these nations. So they were Bulgarian Turks or mostly Albanians coming from uh, Serbia, Kosovo, uh, and Macedonia. So the 19th division transformed into a mixture of Balkan ethnic groups while serving in Galicia. And later the 19th division 19th division transformed into a mostly Arab unit because of uh, the in- influx of the Arab recruits. So for the Muslim nations, no big differences. Of course, there were lots of complaints, and you can easily see it within the memoirs. And don't forget, these memoirs often written after the end of the war, during the national spirit. Related with the Christian, this is another issue. As you uh, know, uh, during April 1915, uh, there was some Armenian rebellions at the eastern part of the. Uh, uh, Anatolia at the Russian Iranian borders. So the Ottoman army uh, issue and orders taking most of the Christian uh, and to a certain extent Jews out of the combat formations and putting them under labor units. Uh, some historians, mainly Armenian historians, accuse the Ottoman Empire that these labor units uh, use as a method to kill all the uh, Armenians and other non-Muslim recruits. Uh, That is not true, and we can easily follow up what happened to these labor units and how they perform. These labor units mainly used to construct roads, to construct infrastructure for the combat units, but also do the non-pleasant task of logistic duties that means transporting food equipment from one location to another and not only the non-christians but also muslims the civilians ones that are not uh, proper for combat formations also uh, mobilized and created labor units so we have also uh, Muslim-labeled units and mixed units operating together. However, we have documented cases that if the unit commanders feel that the non-Muslim recruits or officers loyal enough, they continue to serve with the uh, combat formations, including the Armenians also. Uh, don't forget, uh medical course mostly consist of uh, non uh, muslims so they continue to serve technical branches uh, over represented with uh, non christians that means railways uh, communication uh, all this uh, technical stuff they continue to work in addition to that even infantry artillery units continue to keep some of the non christians seen as loyal, and they continue to uh, work within the uh, Ottoman uh, combat formations. So not a standard system and obviously not some sort of Nazi Germany type extermination policy in which military deliberately get rid of non-Christians, especially Armenians, kill them in thousands, etc. That is not true.
0: Um, I think just a couple of times in mentioning the the non-Muslim group, just to clear it up for our visitors, um, I think you, you said non-Christian, but you meant non-Muslim for the last, just a couple of times. Uh,
2: non, muslim sorry. Yeah,
0: no, that's fine. Okay. Um, obviously, there's a massive debate about the Ottoman policy towards that results in the deaths of uh, of non-Muslims in the empire, especially in the civilian side, but for the military side within the army, I think it's fascinating to learn more about, you know, how non-Muslims were integrated into the army even after the war began and tensions uh, increased. I have one follow-up question that relates back to the. 19th division I believe it was that you mentioned that's moving around and absorbing recruits from far-flung places and recruits who obviously speak different languages and there's been a lot of attention paid I mean I live in Austria so I suppose I'm exposed to this a bit more a lot of attention paid to the challenge of to the officer corps of being able to communicate effectively with enlisted men who speak different languages and who very often don't speak German. So how did that work in mixed Ottoman units where you have a unit where you've got Turks, you've got Arabs and perhaps others how do they communicate are is there any evidence of difficulties or did everybody learn enough basic turkish that it was it was a, a commonly understood language
2: Well uh, first of all uh, all of us raised in nationalist states Uh, with uh, a single language, uh, except Switzerland or some countries like that. But in Turkey, everybody learned Turkish. So uh, we use the modern standards, the previous states also. Uh, Ottoman Empire was a multinational empire. And without any deliberate uh, policy, people start learning Many languages when they were young, so an ordinary Ottoman officer can able to communicate can able to use several uh, local languages plus generally also French or in addition to that German, and that is also true for most of the recruits. So they able to communicate uh, the official language Turkish, and if they pass through schooling including. Primary school, they at least passed through some Turkish classes, so they should know to use some basics of the language. Okay, but uh, some uh, locals coming from mono ethnic regions, especially peasants, uh, not getting any education, not chances to communicate different ethnic groups, may have difficulties. But don't forget, Ottoman uh, officer calls. Non- non-commissioned officers, especially as uh, multi-lingu- multilingual, coming from different ethnic backgrounds and able to use uh, several languages fluently. I mean, an ordinary Ottoman officer, regardless of region of birth, can able to uh, speak uh, several languages and the Ottoman official language, actually, the official language uh, is consists of Turkish, Arabic, Persian. So mixture. The vocabulary is mixture of three languages. As a military historian who is fluent in Ottoman language, I discovered while serving in Afghanistan that I can understand the Afghanis because the Afghans also use uh, an old version of Persian called Dari. So all of a sudden, I was surprised that I can understand them. <laughs> so. Uh, communication, of course, from time to time, it got into the difficulty. And there's the value of the non-commissioned officers, because non-commissioned officers remain in the same company, in the same unit throughout their careers, unlike the officers assigning from one unit to another. But the non-commissioned officers remain with the same unit. So uh, the Ottomans did not suffer huge problems. Your, Yes, they did suffer some problems, and especially some young officers without long uh, experience with the units had difficulty to learn it, and the problem bigger for the reserve officers, because before 1911, the Ottomans did not have reserve officer system. So after before the Balkan Wars, they introduced it, and they massively used it during the First World war, so most probably reserve officers had difficulties to communicate some soldiers, but it was not a big problem. and in terms of ethnic units, the Ottomans did not have ethnic units. Initially, uh, the units raised, for example, from Syria most probably consist of mostly Arabs and other ethnic groups living in that region. According to the uh, regulations, there should be a depot regiment for each division providing replacement soldiers. But the problem was because the uh, transportation system in the Ottoman uh, Empire was very primitive, it was very difficult to send uh, original records from the uh, origin recruitment uh, district of the division. So, for example, if the division serving in Gallipoli, a Syrian division, it should receive replacements from Syria, but it never happened. So, units serving in a particular region receive recruits from that region. And in a very short time, ethnicity, the regional identity of the unit disappears. Of the high number of casualties in a regular First World War uh, battles. So I gave the example of 19th division. So the same division traveling all different identity uh, would change it as ethnic identity. Of course, there should be some old hands, old soldiers still alive and serving in the same uh, division, but uh, Every time the division moved to another front, it would automatically change.
0: And a question I think that is one that's quite important in particular in Australian popular memory, but I'm curious, and some of our listeners are curious, generally speaking, about what the enemies of the Ottomans, I suppose primarily the British, the British Indians and the Russians, thought of the performance of Ottoman troops on the battlefield. It's something that as a native English speaker, I'm exposed to via the Australians a little bit, but we don't very often uh, get exposed to the Russians, for example, but can you ta- tell us a little bit about what the, what the allies thought of the fighting performance of the Ottomans? Uh,
2: well, uh, first of all, I have to say that initially at the beginning of the war, Everybody, including Germans, were thinking very coolly of the Ottomans because of the Balkan Wars. Uh, during 1912 1913 Balkan Wars, the Ottoman armies defeated in detail and, in most cases, routed. So uh, they ran away when they came under enemy fires. And this was seen as uh, the end of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman. Uh, army as a whole treated as very poor uh, primitive type army. And that was one of the reasons why Churchill uh, devised the Gallipoli campaign because he was thinking that when the Ottoman soldiers uh, see the Union Jack, they will immediately escape. That was uh, the main uh, idea. And when the Ottomans uh, did not uh, escape, instead, stand their grounds, the whole scheme collapsed actually. Uh, so, mo- most of the uh, European armies, including the Australians, came at the Ottoman fronts, either Gallipoli, Palestine, Mesopotamia, and for the Russians, Caucasus. Uh, they were expecting an oriental, primitive army. Something from uh, deep in Asia or even Africa, unable to make use of any modern technology. So they expected them to uh, be very poor, weak soldiers. And interestingly, if you pay attention to the propaganda in 1914, 1915, uh, Lots of description of the Ottoman soldiers, but very few description of the officers. As if this army consists of uh, only soldiers. So, in their mind, it is not an army, but a hold. So, primitive uh, soldiers with weapons, without any European style command, control, unit structure fighting massively that was the expectation especially in uh, Gallipoli after the initial uh, weeks of fighting uh, they discovered that they were facing a european style army fighting uh, exactly the same way they were fighting and in certain aspects, better than them for example the ottoman army invested a lot for snipers, that means selected soldiers acting light infantry duties or Yagya duties, let's say the German uh, way. It was a big surprise for the British and the Australians because they never come across this kind of uh, battle tactics techniques. So, uh, slowly but surely, their uh, way of seeing the Ottoman Uh, soldiers changed a lot and after a while they started to see especially when both sides stuck to move forward or backward and uh, both sides lost their chances or lost their hopes to achieve breakthrough, uh, they started to communicate each other more than before and they started to treat them Uh, Johnny Turk, so initially it was the Abdul, uh, the uh, dark-faced, dim-witted, loyal, but uh, without any intellect, peasant soldier, transformed into Johnny Turk. For the Russians, uh, it's completely different story. Because the combat actions in Gallipoli, Mesopotamia, Palestine, more or less acted more civilized according to the general standards of the first world war. So both sides treated the other sides equally, applied uh, the law of war, Uh, so there were not much big uh, breaches, crimes, war crimes, etc. But at the Caucasus front, because both sides fought within the dense population, and there was local rebellions, and both sides tried to recruit other side's citizens to fight behind the front line, it transformed into a more violent war. So scorch of tactics, very common. Uh, the Russians employ Kazakhs, Kazakhs and irregular formations and these guys committed terrible crimes when they occupied certain regions and the ottomans employed irregulars and these units also difficult to control and they also did terrible things so the uh, battles at the caucasus very much different from the other fronts and what the russians were seeing Because the Russians had their own uh, Muslim subject nations in the Caucasus Central Asia, They they had an ideological way of seeing the Turks, and this never changed. So when the Russian Revolution started and the Caucasus Front started to dismantle, Russians, for the first time, discovered that they were fighting against human beings. And you can easily follow this line within the published Russian memoirs, even within their official histories that they did actually fight against the humans, but not subhuman races. So from the very beginning, Russians saw the Ottoman soldiers, subhumans, something like these subject nations in the Caucasus and in the Central Asia. And... Interestingly, the Russians treated their own Muslim soldiers also the same. For example, one of the very famous uh, cavalry division, raised from the Caucasus and Azerbaijan, labeled as a Savage Division. This division served at the uh, Eastern Front against the Germans and Austria-Hungarians, and during the Civil War, it remained loyal to the Uh, white Russians. But even the official name of this division is Savage Division. I mean, they were naming their own soldiers like that.
0: Yes, part of that imperial hierarchy that comes up again and again when we look at these uh, different states. Now, for our last question for today, We do have a question about the unconventional warfare, but I think you've mentioned it a couple of times, so we can leave that one aside. But for our last question today, I want to talk about the resilience of the, or I'd like to invite you to talk about the resilience of the Ottoman army, because this is a theme that comes up in the book as well. And I think one of the things that struck me was you framed the challenge in a way uh, to the army in a way that I hadn't really seen it very much before in the the English, French or German literature, by reminding us that the army is actually facing eight fronts in addition to the ones that we in the West are more familiar with. There are fronts like the Aden Front in, in the Arabian Peninsula, the Asir Front, the Persian Front. And all of these things create a huge challenge for an army that has a lot less resources than those of the other great powers and arguably you could say faced even more difficult circumstances than the other central powers. And yet you also remind us that in the book that the Ottoman army doesn't Kind of disintegrate in 1918 in the way that the Austro-Hungarian army does and in the way that the German army is sort of in the process of doing when the armistice is signed. So how do you understand that resilience? What allows that army to continue to function in spite of these massive pressures on it?
2: Well, uh, our problem is with the luxury of hindsight, uh, from uh, we treated uh, the Ottoman Empire during the First World War as a lost cause because we knew that in the end the empire collapsed, many nations born out of it, and none of these nations have any uh, positive feeling about the Ottoman heritage. So you see, in year 1914, when you start reading your book, you knew the story: the Ottomans defeated. Although they may won some tactical victories, but you knew that in the end, strategically, the empire would be defeated and would be divided. So with that particular perspective, when you try to read uh, the story, you suffer difficulty to understand why these bloody idiots are fighting for a lost cause. But that was not a lost cause in 1940, 1915, 16, 17, and even 1918, I mean, don't forget the spring offensive of the Germans. It would have the potential to change uh, everything. So for the Ottoman leaders, it was clear from the year one, 1914, they were expecting that the victory, the war would be won at the Western Front and would be lost at the Western Front. The Ottoman leaders, most of them, uh, let's say, saw their duty to divert as more soldiers of Russians, the British, and the French from the main theaters uh, as much as they would. And it worked. I mean, the Russians, committed nearly 900,000 soldiers. Think about that. I mean, during some Eastern uh, Front campaigns, the Russians lost some battles because lack of a few divisions. And they had a huge army fighting against the Ottomans. 900,000 soldiers at the Ottoman Front. Think about the number of the British and colonial soldiers in Palestine and Mesopotamia. All in all, one and a half million soldiers, I mean. So think about that, all these soldiers might be able to spot the main effort at the Western Front. And don't forget these soldiers eat food, they need weapons, they need ammunition. Think about the ammunition crisis that toppled the British government. And they were sending tons and tons of ammunition and weapons to the Oriental sideshows, including Gallipoli. The Ottomans mainly fought three main fronts. Uh, the Caucasus, the main effort from the beginning till 1917, Palestine, Mesopotamia, for a period of time, Gallipoli, uh, for a bit longer than one year, Uh, was the main effort of the Ottomans, but it ceased after uh, uh, January 1916. And like you said, there was small fronts, including Persia, uh, Yemen, Asir, Hijaz. And don't forget, the Ottomans also had to deal with a series of rebellions inside the empire. Because it was an empire, it had to defend everywhere, including Yemen. And the Ottomans did this using the local sources. And that was the biggest achievement of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans, it was a a pre-industrial economy, agriculture-based, medieval-style economy, which, in comparison to the European uh, nation's limited population, it managed to mobilize its people, It managed to mobilize its meager sources, and it did fought a very long war, which transformed not only the countries like Ottoman Empire, but also the European industrialized nations. So in that sense, Ottomans did succeed, but in the end, because uh, their coalition lost the war, and most often people forget about it. when you are dealing with Gallipoli campaign, Palestine etc you forget about that the Ottomans were allies of the Germans and it was <laughs> So the Ottomans did their duty well but in the end the war also transformed the empire So the empire in 1918 was not the empire in 1914 it killed thousands of uh, soldiers, civilians, but it also transformed the population, transformed the society, and destroyed the traditional bonds. I mean, because we born in a national state, we simply unable to figure out the loyalties, uh, how the things worked in a traditional empire, the regional loyalties, ethnic royalties religious loyalties, identities, but at the same time, on top of them, an empire umbrella. Uh, So it is an alien concept for us. And so that, that is the reason why we have difficulty to understand the Ottoman performance. And this is also one reason I wrote it down, because the Ottoman experience uniquely different from Uh, the British, French, even from the Russian experience, although Russia is also some sort of a traditional empire. And don't forget, uh, the war ended for the Brits in 1918, November 1918, but that was not the case for the Ottomans because the war continued on until September uh, 1922 for Anatolia. For Syria, it continued up until 1926 for Iraq, another date, and don't forget for Arabian Peninsula, a civil war born immediately after the First world war. So the war continued with the Saudis capturing different front parts, fighting against the Yemenis, destroying the uh, British puppet state of Hijaz kingdom. So uh, we need to see that these people continue fighting, I mean, Uh, for most of the Ottoman officer memoirs, you see the same title, 10 years war, because the Ottoman officers generally start their calendar from 1912, the beginning of the Balkan Wars, and ended with 1922, the end of Turkish independence war.
0: That I think is quite an important thing to keep in mind. It's certainly something that is at the forefront of our experience now with our YouTube channel, because we are in the thick of trying to understand and present all of those different aspects of the 10 years war. I hadn't heard that phrase before. I think it's quite an interesting one. So Dr. Ouyar, I want to thank you for joining us today and for answering my questions and those of our community as well. For those of you listening out there who might be interested in getting your hands on a copy of an updated and relatively compact operational history of the Ottoman Army in World War I, the book is called The Ottoman Army and the First World War. And we will put a link to the book and how our interested listeners can get their hands on it. So once again, Dr. Uyar, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Uh, thank you for invitation and thank you for promoting my book. <laughs>